Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Carrie Taylor, who spent more than 20 years coaching at all levels of soccer. Carrie's career, both as a player and a coach, has seen her play a role in the start of three teams. She's also spent some time, first at the collegiate level and more recently in the professional USL, coaching men's teams. It's a door she's proud to have pushed open, but not what she ultimately wants to be judged for. I consider myself a coach. So, you know, you want to be evaluated and valued on how well you do your job, not your gender. And while she was coaching in the men's game earlier this year, Carrie was a very interested observer of the NWSL season. I really feel like that flywheel is going to really start turning um, from a sponsorship perspective, from a viewership perspective, from a fan engagement perspective. I'm really excited um, about the, the growth that, that, and the energy that's kind of just oozing out from the NWSL through this year. Carrie shares a lot about her path through the coaching ranks, which included some time spent outside the sport. It was the hardest job I ever had. Uh, it was the most humbling experience of my life. There were days that I was crying in the back of the truck because I was 40 years old with a master's degree and had you know achieved all these different things. And here I was uh, loading a UPS truck. Carrie draws on that in all her experience as she tackles her newest project, a networking group for females in the sport called Women in Soccer. Women's soccer, women's sport in general, still needs a lot of advocacy and still needs a lot of growth. And so, you know, yes, Sandy Ego Loyal was a dream job, but if I were to be true to my passions and and what what I feel, you know, I'm probably best at is helping advocate for women and and helping push the needle a little bit more for women. As always, show notes for this episode are on credentialsonly.com. And please take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you access podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with soccer coach Carrie Taylor on Credentials Only. Carrie, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I want to talk about your career and everything you've done and what you have, your new project, but I, I, I kind of stopped in my tracks, I got to be honest, in preparing for this when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile. In your profile, you wrote, I love, and love is in all caps, I love the challenge of the impossible. I am a self-starter. I'm a spark plug. Personal resourcefulness in tough times from being raised in the murder capital of America, Flint, Michigan. Toughness is ingrained within me. What's your reaction hearing that read back to you? Um, it's, it, it, it rings true. Um, and I think that was written a couple years ago, to be honest. And I think it really kind of rings true to a lot of uh, what's going on in 2020 and a lot of, um, you know, ups and downs and, and things that all of us who work in sport uh, have in our career. And I think, you know, the, the one thing that I've learned through the years um, of being in sport is you know, those of us that have that grit and that determination are often the ones that end up having the longevity um, within this crazy realm of, of, of sport that we all love and hate sometimes. 
And, you know, it's, I speak often of where I grew up in Flint and it's been on the news for, you know, it's, it's never usually on the, on the news for good things. It's usually on the news for bad things, but, you know, growing up in an environment um, that was gritty and where you had to kind of fight to get out like that. Those are lessons that I, you know, learned at a young age and still try to carry with me today. And you've done a lot in your career on the pitch. And I want to talk about that, but I know that it isn't always a straight line. And Hmm. I want to know (laughs) a a UPS loading dock. How did that fit into your coaching career? (laughs) Yeah. So when you talk about that grit and determination, um, I took a risk and I went to uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps at the time they had a women's team and it was September, 2011. And I went up there to work with their W League team and their U18, like a girls elite team, which is basically like an academy team. And when I got up there, two months into the job, they discontinued the women's program. So my boss got let go. I had moved to a new country and all this turmoil, you know, that happens in sports. Like things happen, you get fired, you get hired, you know, programs get discontinued, money gets, money runs out. Um, So I ended up coming back to California and didn't have a job. And I, at the time I was, it was February of 2012. It was kind of within soccer. It was a tough time. Um, I applied for college jobs, got interviews, didn't get the job. I applied for college assistant coaching jobs, got told I was overqualified. Only place that was hiring was UPS, 3 a.m. to 9 a.m., um, first unloading semi trucks, then sorting packages and then loading, uh, trucks. And it was the hardest job I ever had. Uh, it was the most humbling experience of my life. There were days that I was crying in the back of the truck because I was 40 years old with a master's degree and had, you know, achieved all these different things. And here I was, uh, loading a UPS truck, but, um, it gave me, time to reflect. It gave me time to be humbled. And, you know, it's, it's those experiences like that. And, you know, I joke about it now, my friends who kind of know that story, they always say, well, you could be working at UPS, Carrie. So stop complaining. (laughs) You know, I worked with a lot of great people there. I mean, it's a tough job. Every time I I get a package or I drive down the road and see a a UPS or a FedEx truck, it's like, I tip my cap. To, to all those that, that work in that industry. It, it, you talked a lot about grit, and, and I think it, something that stands out through your history is it hasn't always been the easiest path. And that started mm-hmm. right out of the gates in your college career, because for as much as soccer is a part of your life now, it's not like you went and played at some D1 college for your whole college career. What was your collegiate experience? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a of the older age. So I, I, I'm, I'm proud of being 48. And so when I went, when I decided to go to the University of Michigan, they didn't have a varsity women's soccer program. So at the time, there was a group of women who had a, a very organized club team that, you know, hired a coach that traveled to other universities. And, and this was 1990. So, um, you know, Title IX had been around a while, but it hadn't really been instituted on a large scale. So while I, while I was at Michigan, myself and my other teammates petitioned the university. And in fall of 94, they ended up um, granting us varsity status. So 
I stayed an extra semester um, at college and was the grandma of the team. So I was the oldest player on the team. And, you know, it was kind of my dream uh, while I was in college to say that I was, you know, a varsity, a true varsity athlete. Um, and that's, you know, through that process of having to organize basically our own schedule and fundraise and hire a coach and, and do all the things that like a coach does, that's really where like the coaching aspect kind of, I fell in love with that. And it's, you know, it's not a surprise when I really reflect and think about it. And, and my college teammates is like, you know, they're like Taylor, like, it's no surprise you went into coaching. So, um, you know, that's, I got to say I played on team one and that's, that's something that I'll always treasure and, and really, you know, it, it seems like a long time ago, but it really wasn't a long time ago. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of young female soccer players today who have the opportunity to go to college, like they don't really realize that the big college soccer boom for women was between literally 92 and 96, um, where just there was a huge boom, lots of programs, um, schools were finally, you know, putting money into to women's programming. Um, and not only with soccer, but with other sports. And, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a good time to, uh, to be an athlete, to, to see uh, growth and change. And then that opened up the door for you to go work in a few college programs as an assistant coach, but you had that biology degree. So you kind of <laughs> decided to test the waters. What did you do after a few different gigs in the college coaching ranks? Yeah. So my dad, you know, always reminds me that I, I should have gone to medical school and, you know, I made that decision to, to go into coaching, um, you know, how to stop at Temple University as an assistant, then moved to Cincinnati, Ohio and worked at Xavier, started a men's program and, and took over a women's program at the College of Mount St. Joseph in Cincinnati and, you know, have just kind of worked within, you know, college soccer, youth soccer, and then kind of took a, took a chance and moved to California. And, and so, um, you know, worked on multiple different levels, coached boys and men, and, you know, most recently worked in men's professional soccer as, as um, the first woman's assistant in, in the USL. So it's uh, definitely not a straight line. <laughs> I've definitely had a lot of stops, you know, it's, um, but it's looking back on it and reflecting like I wouldn't have it any other way. As you've shown in your career, you can get involved in coaching at many levels of the sport, but I'm struck by some of the titles for coaches, such as a sporting director or a technical coach. Can you explain to a soccer outsider, such as myself, what some of these titles mean? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different, I would say there's so many different uh, nuances and, and positions um, within the game uh, as far as how soccer has evolved. Um, I think I saw online the other day that there's, you know, some professional soccer clubs actually have a throw-in coach, which to me, I was like, really? Like you get paid to be a throw-in coach? Like, okay. Um, you know, so, you know, you can be a, a technical consultant with like, for instance, right now I'm working with the Jamaican women's national team. Um, and we're not doing it. We haven't been doing anything this year, basically like on the field because of COVID, but 
uh, a lot of behind the scenes planning and long-term strategies and looking at players and, and different things like that. So, you know, within soccer that you can, you can be a youth coach and you can stay that course. If you so choose, you can, you know, dabble into the college game and, and, you know, a lot of people love coaching that age uh, of player. You can, you can push into, you know, the, now there's a, a very stable women's professional league. There's multitudes of, of professional leagues on the men's side. So there's, there's different pockets. Um, and I think it depends a lot on uh, your personality and, uh, you know, the coaches, the, where a coach wants to um, fill their niche. And I've kind of always been a little bit of a, a wandering spirit. So if you look at my resume, it's like I do four years here or four years there or four years. Like I've been a high school coach twice and I did two four-year stints. You know, I, I stayed at Mount St. Joe for four years. I, there's, it's just my pattern. I don't know if I get bored or whatever, but I like, I like challenges. I like doing things that, you know, people say can't be done. So, you know, I've been involved in three different startup programs from one, one, my own, like as a player in college, one starting a division three men's soccer program back in 20, in 2005, when, you know, no one knew about me because social media wasn't that big, but like I got to start a men's program and that was that I could write a book about that. And then, you know, most recently with San Diego loyal, literally putting a professional team on the field in six months, which was like pedal to the metal craziness. Um, but projects like that excite me. Like I, I love, I love like putting new things together and just saying, you know what, you didn't think it could be done. Well, we did it. So, um, those are the, those are the kind of things that, that really kind of my passion gravitates towards, I guess. One of the unique things within soccer coaching compared to some other sports, it seems, is that there's a licensing process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Explain what you have to go through and how do you think that helps your profession? Yeah. Um, and that's something like I don't I don't even know. I guess it started, you know, in Europe with the licensing. And, and it's interesting because, like you mentioned, not a lot of other sports have that. So within soccer in the U S um, the U S soccer is kind of like the U S governing body and they have different levels of licensing. So um, you start at your E license and you work your way up to the A, which is like the highest level of, of licensing. And now they have an A pro. So um, I did, I started doing my licensing when I was in college and every couple of years I would, I would go on and get the next level, the next level. So I have, I have an A license, um, and they've in the past like three or four years, they've kind of revamped the license a little bit. So I say I have the old A, I don't have the new A, but you know, there's there's continuing education out there. So I'm always trying to learn, but I don't I don't think you'll I'll be taking any courses in the in the near future. Um but once you get it, do you, is it for life or do you have to do you have to renew every few years? Yeah, so it's changed because when I got my A uh, previously, you had to get a certain number of continuing education units every year so that you could go to a symposium, you could re-audit, you could audit your A, so you could go to, you know, the coaching school again and, and not test, but like participate and, and learn new strategies and um, new methods like that. Um, but it's, you know, 
it's good because it, the licensing challenges you, um, to think differently. It challenges you, you know, cause you're in your environment, you know, in the middle of Michigan or in the middle of Ohio and you go to a license and you meet people in other areas. So not only do you learn from the instructors, you learn and network with, with other coaches. Um, and then there's also the United Soccer Coaches Association, which is kind of like a union um, for, for soccer coaches. They offer some licensing as well. So they have like premier and national diplomas and, and things like that. So, you know, there's there's a real educational tool um, to, co- to soccer coaches within the U.S. And you can be a great coach and have never gone to a class or you can you know, start off as a novice and, and grow through going to the class. So there's, you know, pros and cons to, to getting the licenses. Some people enjoy it. Some, you know, some had better teachers than others, but, you know, I, I always enjoyed um, the licensing and I used to teach the D's and the E's um, in a couple different States uh, to, to people. So um yeah, but I think it's I think it's a good thing. Um there's always it's always good to have, you know, to be pushing yourself to have like checks and balances to to learn different ideas about whether it's technique or tactics or psychology or um you know nutrition and sports performance and things like that. So yeah, I enjoy the license thing actually. Another aspect that seems unique to the sport of soccer is the emphasis on player development and in particular to do so within a national governing body or within more so I think clubs and to mm-hmm. develop a player to grow from a, a U18 to a U21 and, and work up to the highest right. level within that club. Yeah. Why is soccer set up that way and what are the benefits? Um, well, I think it, it, you know, it's, it's the understanding. I don't know why, um, but I like that it's set up that way. I think it's the understanding of, you know, uh, kids, if you're talking about coming into soccer at eight years old, like, um, understanding a player at eight, you know, psychologically, socially, cognitively, um, is important as, as a coach. And, and there's a learning pattern, like in school, you learn addition before you learn multiplication and you can't expect someone to get multiplication if they can't add. So, you know, there's, there's a pedagogy to it and there's a learning structure to it. And, um, you know, some players at eight act or can absorb information like a 10 year old. So there's, you know, there's like gifted programs or elite programs, you know, they call the gifted programs in in education um, or, you know, AP classes. So you can actually like be in an, you know, an AP class within soccer if you go to, a, you know, an academy program that's associated with a professional team or something like that. So there's, there's, you know, specific structures of here's what players at, there's competencies. So like, you know, here's what players that you ate should be able to do. And, and this is where they're at, you know, cognitively. And here's what players that you 10 should be able to do. So um, it, there's, there is a lot of structure to it. Um, and, you know, I think the one thing where it can be improved upon is anyone can start a youth soccer club. And a, a lot of times there's not a lot of oversight. So, you know, there's clubs out there that are like, Oh, like come to us, we'll teach you this, this, and this. And they don't really even have a curriculum that, that they're teaching. So 
there's, you know, certain areas of, um, you know, maybe having better checks and balances within the sport. Um, but on a, on a big scale, you know, there is a method to the madness, um, of, of developing players from a, from a player development standpoint. And having that method, do you think it pays off then in better quality players as they get older? Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at like when I was coming through youth soccer, we didn't have, there was no curric- There wasn't a curriculum. You basically played for, for your local team and you had like one rival, you know, I, I grew up in Michigan. So, you know, our big rival was the Michigan Hawks and you always knew they were good, but you know, within, within when I was coming through, we didn't have those structures. We didn't have necessarily set curriculums. And now if you look at, you know, if you compare a player in the nineties to a youth, to a player now, like the things that, that players can do now, it's so much more tactically advanced, technically advanced. So like, there's been a lot, a lot of growth within soccer, you know, since, since the nineties. Um, and it's, it's only going to continue to, to, to grow and catch up with, you know, with Europe and Europe has a head start on us in soccer. South America has a head start on us in, in soccer. Um, but you know, we're, we're getting there. We're starting to, um, not only on the, the men's side, but also on the women's side, we're starting to develop players that are going to play professionally um, in Europe. And, you know, that's that's usually the the kind of highest level um, of soccer. So it's, it's promising to see that American players are being produced in America and they're choosing to go play um, and, and be super challenged um, in, in England. And they're holding, you know, in, in England and France and Germany, Spain and they're they're holding their own uh, which is great I want to touch on that and this is obviously a broad uh, question and we could probably fill up a a whole episode just on this but how would you assess the state of soccer in the United States and and knowing that part of the the success story is U.S. players actually playing outside the United States yeah I mean I remember when major league soccer was you know the first game I remember watching that first game I think it was like 26 or 27 years ago so you know we're playing catch up with clubs that in Europe that have been in existence you know for 100 years so um, I think I believe that the evolution here is it's on fast forward a lot of ways and if you look at the women's game and the women have won the world cup four times and that's you know that's unheard of to, to have that many wins. Um, however, other countries are catching up and, and, you know, Jamaica, for instance, that I have an involvement with now, like they qualified and they went to the 2019 world cup and, and, you know, they never thought it was, it was actually a surprise to everyone. And, and they went and, you know, now that's, that's the standard. That's, that's the bar for a lot of up and coming nations. Um, but yeah, I mean, the U.S. is 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 catching up. The coaches are understanding the game at a higher level. There's a lot of opportunities at the college level, obviously, but you know, professionally, um, there's been three iterations of a women's league. But now, it seems that the National Women's Soccer League is here to stay. Um, they're adding 
you know, Louisville is adding to the league. There's LA's coming in in 2022 and there's rumors that another West coast team is coming in in 2022. And, and, you know, people are, I think we're at the point where people of my age and maybe a little bit older, their kids are now, you know, playing. So like you have an educated body of people who have played the game, who are now pushing their kids towards that sport. Whereas, you know, the basketballs, the, the, the American footballs, the baseballs, that's usually what in the past people had pushed, you know, their kids towards, but now, now a lot of the times that entry sport is soccer. So that's only going, going to, you know, hopefully um, create growth within the sport and, um, and better players, better coaches, better leagues, all, all of that. Commercially, uh, and it's just really been reported here in the past couple of weeks, just the success of that NWSL season. And obviously it's been a big mm-hmm. splash with Angel City and the, the yep. names involved with that franchise starting. In terms of the soccer and the quality of the product on the pitch, how did you assess the NWSL? Uh, this season, yeah. So um, they were the first first uh, pro sport to do a bubble. So they had zero cases of COVID. So that that's a win. Um, their games were being broadcast on CBS Plus, and the viewership was through the roof. I believe it was a four hundred and ninety three percent increase um, in v- viewership, which is amazing. Um, the level was I watched. I've literally like watched all the games in the bubble, which was, was awesome. Um, they had a super short preseason. So some, some of the teams and some of the players were a little rusty, but that's no fault um, to them. Um, but I, I think, and I believe that we're, and I say we being uh, women's soccer, um, is really at like, and once you push over the edge, you, you start to speed up. I, I really feel like that flywheel is going to really start turning um, from a sponsorship perspective, from a viewership perspective, from a fan engagement perspective, um, it, from, you know, from players uh, speaking up, uh, from players being more marketable, uh, coaches just really, you know, being in tune with, with what's going on in, in the, in the big scheme of the world. I I'm really excited, um, about the, the growth that, that, and the energy that's kind of just oozing out from the NWSL through this year. So, you know, I, I think, I think they handled 2020 with grace and, um, you know, kudos to all the franchises and all the coaches and players and general managers and owners to really, really like do, do something really well. On the men's side, MLS has been around for a long time now. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, I think there are some really rapid fans of MLS, but one of the things that is very different compared to some European leagues, there is no promotion or relegation. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the right way for them to go? I mean, I get the business side of it, but in terms of the competition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to say because um, 
the interesting thing about MLS is there's a buy-in fee, you know, there's a franchise fee. So the business side of it is like, who's going to spend, I think the buy-in now is like $250 million to join the league. So, you know, the owners aren't going to vote for relegation having paid that. And it's different because of the setup, you know, from, from the ground up in England, for example, that wasn't the case. Like the clubs were community clubs and you played your way to the top. You played your way to the premier league. Um, you know, I think there's some, some things that, that could be done. I, I, I feel like within, you know, there could be a bridge between the USL and MLS where, cause there's some very, very good championship, um, the USL championship teams. And, you know, maybe there could be, you know, a, a play in game or, you know, and I think it would have to be a slow roll into that. I think it would have to have like, a 10 year plan of, of how that would look or a five year plan of how that would look. Uh, I think it would be super exciting for the fans. I think it would be when you're playing for your life basically, and you're playing for, for the TV contracts and the sponsorships and all that. And you're, you're playing for that pride of not wanting to, to go down a level. I mean, that makes, that makes every game matter more. It makes, you know, rivalries bigger. It, it makes, it makes soccer soccer in a way, I guess is, is a way to say. Um, but, you know, I think from a perspective of getting soccer started here in the U S and being able to keep it sustainable, I think it's, you know, MLS has done a good job at that. And NWSL is, has seemed to have finally figured out the women's piece of it, you know, because there were a couple leagues before that, that the, either the timing wasn't right or, you know, a challenge was a little too big to overcome. So, you know, I hope someday there's promotion relegation here in the U S I, I'm not going to hold my breath, but you know, you can always be hopeful, I guess, because it would make it a lot more interesting. I think. I want to get back into your history a little bit and you touched on uh, Mount St. Joe's where you were hired mm-hmm. to be the coach of an existing women's program, but also to, as you called it, team one at Michigan, you were part of team one of the men's team at Mount St. Joe's. And this was back in the early two thousands. And, uh, you know, it, it it was different to have a a female coaching the men's team. Did you, I mean, knowing, knowing what we talked about at the outset with, with grit and everything, I feel like you embraced the challenge, but what were the obstacles that were probably unique to you as a female? Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I, I almost didn't apply. Um, but actually one of, one of our colleagues from, from Xavier, Scott Swain was the one that that pushed me towards applying because my mindset was, Oh, they're never going to hire a female to coach a men's team. And he was just like, put your resume in, you know, like go for it. And so I did. Um, and I got an interview and I, I ended up getting the job and, and, you know, going into any, I, atta- I tried to attack it of like you would build any program. And I tried to focus less on, you know, it being a female coaching a men's team. And, and, and I think, I believe the advantage that I had was, um, there wasn't a a group of current players that I had to like sell them on me being their coach. Like I got to recruit 
the players that I wanted from, from zero to, you know, that first year we had like 20 some guys on the team. Um, and so they didn't know anything different. So I got to create, I got to help create the culture. I got to, you know, make decisions on what that first team would look like. So I think it would have been a different experience and it might've been more difficult to take over from an existing coach. Um, because that would have been changing a mindset in a group rather than getting to like help set the mindset of the group. Um, and it took about a year for like the coaches and the conference to actually kind of treat me with a little bit of respect. Um, but after that, it was, it was fine. You know, like the, there's a couple of, we, when we would play some non-conference teams, I, I might've gotten a little heckle here or there. If I was on a road trip and a ref didn't know me, they would usually walk up to my male assistant coach and kind of ask him for the lineup or whatever. And yeah, but you know, it was a great learning experience from a, not only from, you know, uh, coaching college age men, but from balancing two programs and having to be super organized and having to, come up with two different practice sessions and, and analyze, you know, two upcoming opponents and play double headers and all of that. Like I, I joke and say it was eight years and four. So it was definitely a lesson in, in, uh, in uh, being efficient and um, learning how, learning really good time management. <laughs> and you went into coaching at a couple of division one programs that you mentioned temple and Xavier, but then, and as an assistant, then you're in charge of a program at the D3 level and just the resources involved and everything's different. And so for yeah. you to make that transition to not only being the head coach, but to working at the D3 level, what were some of the things that now 15 years on stand out to you as the really valuable lessons from that? Yeah. I mean, I had, you know, working at Xavier was a, was a great thing and, and working for, for Dr. Quinn. And I don't think I realized it at the time, what I learned from him until like after the fact. I had two teams. I had one full-time assistant and one part-time assistant that would only come in during the season. So there were three of us, but we weren't even, we weren't even there 12 months out of the year. So my, my male assistant was there August through whenever our last game was. And that was it. So it was, you know, I learned a lot about managing uh, with, with really controlling a budget, uh, with doing a lot with the little um, fundraising. That was a big, a big piece of it. Um, but, you know, trying to, and I wasn't perfect. Trust me. I look back and I'm like, oh, wow, I can't believe I did that. Or, wow, I was kind of mean to, you know, in that situation. So, you know, I think you always, if you're, if you're open to growth, you, you know, you, you can look back and say, okay, yeah, I learned a lesson there. But when, you know, sometimes when you're in the heat of a decision, you're just, you're just doing what you think is right. And you don't, you know, you don't often have like years of experience or, or wisdom um, of, of hindsight, you know, in those moments. So, you know, I'm thankful for being able to work at the D1 level. I'm very thankful for working at the D3 level. And, you know, it's every experience has kind of, you know, prepared me for, for the next job or the, the next challenge and the next situation. So, you know, I'm still continuing to learn. We all are hopefully. And, and, you know, 
I don't know it all. And I try to put smarter people around me and, and learn from other people and, and, uh, work on my own weaknesses and, you know, utilize my strengths to, to get me through. Your experience did help you a lot as you were now in San Diego and you got involved with something called soccer city. Mm-hmm. What was that an effort to do and how did you get involved and what did you do with them? Oh, wow. Yeah. I have a little PTSD in, in regard to that. So, um, soccer city was a project to bring major league soccer to San Diego. Uh, I actually, um, got asked to a planning meeting and walked into the meeting and the only seat open on the, at the meeting was a seat on the couch next to Landon Donovan. So that's how I kind of got to know Landon, um, and, and got, pulled into the project. So basically we were trying to bring a franchise here, uh, into San Diego and we wanted to, um, knock down the old, uh, Qualcomm stadium where the chargers used to play. And, um, you know, we thought our project was amazing and that there were no taxpayer dollars and we thought it was amazing. And like, we thought the community would just love to have it. What we found out is that, you know, in life, sometimes politics get in the way. So there happened to be another group that wanted wanted that land for their project. So it ended up actually going um, on the ballot in, in San Diego. So it became a political campaign. And so part of what my job was in that was to engage with the community, plan events. I was literally out on the weekend talking to voters um, when it came down to like the last four months, I was running the campaign headquarters and getting volunteers and doing phone banks and coordinating lawn signs and all of that stuff. Um, never in a million years did I think that um, I would be working on a political campaign, but I learned a ton. Um, and that's when I really got to know the, the, the fans within the city of San Diego, who are a lot of them are my are like great friends today. Um, and that's a lot of the fan base that ended up coming out to support San Diego Loyal. We got uh, dinged pretty hard at the polls. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of us that put our heart and soul in the project and it, it didn't come to fruition, but, you know, through, through a lot of different things in the universe, um, you know, San Diego now has a, a USL team. So we didn't get the MLS franchise, but we we got a pro team um, to San Diego. So it took a it took a roundabout. We we had to double back. We had to take a new trail. But um, yeah, I mean, we ended up bringing outdoor professional soccer back to San Diego. So, and you mentioned in passing early on the startup process for the loyal was really fast. What made oh, yeah. it so fast and how in the world did you guys pull it off? Oh, so, um, let's see. It basically, we announced the franchise on June 19th of 2019. And the reason I know that is because, uh, San Diego's area code is six one nine. So they wanted to announce it on, um, June 19th. And so, um, basically preseason started January 20th of 2020. So we hired staff, we found players, we found a training facility, we ordered equipment, all of that. And, um, 
you know, that was where, uh, where I really felt personally that all of the, my past experiences from starting programs, from coaching, from hiring staff, from firing people, from every fundraising, all of it, like, that's where I really feel like all of that prepared me to help put a team on the field in six months because, you know, Landon was thinking big picture and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we have to order the uniforms. We have to get sizes for the players. We have to estimate, okay, our roster is only 12 people. We're going to have 22. Like, you know, like, okay, where are we practicing? Do we have locker rooms? Do we have this? Do we have that? And there was so much of where, you know, a lot of the little details that a fans don't see or understand and be like, unless you've had all these experiences, some of the things you just don't think about, you know, like, Oh, we're having tryouts. Okay. We need a waiver for the tryout people to sign. So we don't get sued if they get hurt, you know, like all of those little things that was like, that was like part of what, you know, I was putting into the planning process. And, and I learned a ton too. I learned about, you know, player contracts and negotiating with agents. And that was a, an eye opener for me. And, you know, like hopefully those experiences I can take, you know, if I hopefully maybe one day get a job in the NWSL as a GM where I can say like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I've negotiated contracts with agents and, you know, I know how to set up a bonus structure and I know, you know, this and that and salary caps and all of that stuff. So yeah, the, um, the, the long and the short of it was our owner wanted to play in 2020. And now I don't know if maybe that was a good <laughs> idea, but he, he was, he was really focused on San Diego needs this team now. And, you know, I, we, we did it and COVID hit and, you know, you can never have that crystal ball to look into the future. So, um, they're, they're going to be here for a long time, I feel like. And, you know, I, I'm glad to have had all of those experiences um, with the team. And you've done all that operations work, but then the t- you get a team and the team's yep. on the pitch. And you go from sitting next to Landon in that planning meeting on a couch to sitting next to him on the bench and being the only female yeah. coaching men's professional soccer in the United States. What was that experience like? And how did you react to the reception of being that only female, did you want it to be a big deal or do you want it to move past that? Um, you know, I, I consider myself a coach. So, you know, you want to be evaluated and valued on how well you do your job, not your gender. Um, and you know, it, it was, I, I feel like it was well-received, um, by the players for sure. Like I really enjoyed working with, with the fellas and, and, you know, hopefully I taught them something and they taught me a lot. And, you know, from a, from a perspective of maybe at least opening a door for someone else that, that wants to work in men's professional soccer, who happens to be a woman, um, you know, now that door's kind of been open. So I hope other people, who want to take on that challenge, apply or, you know, put their name out there or talk to someone and, or do an internship or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think, you know, I think that is, is kind of what I want it to be. And, and, you know, I talked to, 
um, I'm friends with the Sac Republic head coach and got to know him at some scouting events. And, you know, he said to me, he goes, Carrie, he goes, I'm hiring a, a female trainer. And he goes, I never would have done that before. And I was like, well, why? And he goes, well, cause I didn't think about it until I met you, you know, like women, women can work on within the, the men's game. And I was like, okay, great. And then a couple months later, I was like, how's she doing? He goes, she's fantastic. I said, well, good. I'm glad you gave her that opportunity. Cause yes, we can be good at our jobs. Like, you know, I, I'm definitely not an advocate for putting people in positions just because of their gender or color or anything like give people opportunities on their merits. And the fact that they happen to be from another country or happen to have a different skin color or happen to be a female, like to me, that's, that's, that doesn't really matter. It's, it's, um, you know, getting the right people a to fit, fit your your culture, your philosophy and who know their stuff. And then if you can tick all those boxes, the other things really shouldn't matter. Obviously it's probably far removed working in the professional game in 2020 than doing D three coaching in, in 2005. But as you were in the program this year, what do you see the benefits to be of analytics in, in soccer? Cause it seems like that is a sport that's really embracing it. Oh yeah. There's a lot of data. So um, I, I tend to be a little bit more old school, but I think, um, I mean, number you can nowadays, like you can have the match report, you can tell, you know, percentages of, of possession. You can, you know, you can do all these fancy charts and, and all that stuff. And, and so you can see trends, you can understand, um, you know, who, who the key players are and things like that. But, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, tell you how to look at your team and assess your team and then match the tactics or overcome the tactics of the other team. So like um, the analytics are great. You can, you know, how much ground players cover. I think the sports science piece of the analytics is amazing. You know, like they have the GPS pods and you can know, you know, sprint max sprint speed. You can know, you know, you can do urine tests on hydration and different things like that. So like the sports science piece is amazing. Some of the, uh, analytics, this is just my personal opinion. You have, you have to balance it. You can't, to me, you just can't just focus on the analytics piece. There's, there's a human aspect. There's a coaching aspect. There's a mental aspect that goes into to each and every player and each and every game. So while I think all the analytics are great, it can't, to me, it just can't be the, the be all end all um, of it because, you know, there's some great games that were played well before and great players and, and great rivalries and amazing, amazing um, soccer being played before, you know, video cameras were even taping every game or anything, you know, like we used to watch videos, like we had a video player back in the day, you know, and now it's, now you can have your iPad and it connects to this platform and you can draw pictures on your phone and all the crazy stuff. So it, it's good, but it's not, to me, it's not the end all be all. You get San Diego Loyal on the field this year and the season starts and then COVID yep. shuts everything down. Um, Eventually the, the season came back, but when they came back on the field, you were not on the bench. What decision did you make and why? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I read somewhere 
there was an article that was saying like the best time to have a pivot is during like times of turmoil and, and challenge. And, you know, looking at my, my past history, like I've been a huge advocate for women. I, I feel like I consider myself a feminist. I consider myself like a champion um, of, of women. And hopefully we'll get to talk about women's soccer in a little bit. Um, but, you know, I kind of looked at it and, and it was great. And it was a great opportunity to work with professional players. But, you know, I'm, I was only, I was literally like on the field every day, helping run practice, you know, putting in all these hours. And realistically, I was helping 26 players and, you know, at the professional level, which is great. But, you know, let's be honest, women's soccer, women's sport in general still needs a lot of advocacy and still needs a lot of growth. And so, you know, yes, Sandy Ego Loyal was a dream job, but if I were to be true to my passions and, and what, what I feel, you know, I'm probably best at is helping advocate for women and, and helping push the needle a little bit more for women. So, so yeah, so being involved right now with the Jamaican women's national team, you know, helping a country that doesn't have the same resources as the U S does and, and, you know, helping with, hopefully put in place some grassroots programming to, you know, really get a, a up and coming country, hopefully back to the world cup. That excites me to be involved with this new group called women in soccer, which is basically our mission is to like be inclusive of all women who love the game, whether you're a coach, whether you're a fan, whether you're in the front office, whether you maybe want to get involved in soccer we're putting together a network um where women can connect and you know champion each other problem solve together complain together um i'll be i'll be doing a podcast in relation to that that's kind of my contribution to to the group um is to help elevate women's voices and yeah i mean i i'm right now um kind of hoping to get into the NWSL and, and really concentrate my energies on, you know, elevating and, 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 and championing women. So yeah, it wasn't necessarily easy. It's been a, a tough year in a lot of ways. Um, but that really, you know, speaks to my heart and, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. So Hopefully you'll see me at the 2023 World Cup. <laughs> we will see you yeah. very soon. Women in Soccer is due to launch in November. Yes. Who yes. are you partnering with on this project? Yeah, so um, that was another thing. During COVID, um, I was able to, to uh, connect with some great women. So the head coach um, at UC Davis, her name's Tracy Hamm, um, there was a movie produced about her, a documentary called Coach the Movie, and it was about her challenge of getting into a coaching license here in the U.S. Um, she couldn't get in to get her to get on the A course, so she chose to figure out that problem, and she went to Europe, and she did her UEFA A. So she's one of two females in the U.S. that actually have their UEFA A, which is unheard of. 
and they did a documentary about her. So Tracy's involved and she's a badass woman and she's one of the founding members of women in soccer. And then the woman who produced her movie, Courtney Levinson, who's a sports psychologist, a mom, you know, has been involved in soccer for a long time. So Courtney Levinson's actually the founder of it. Um, It's not just for women. It's also for allies as well. So Kidani McAlpin, who's the women's coach at USC, he's an ally board member. Um, We have uh, Maggie Entim, who is a female sports agent who represents a lot of male and female players. And actually she now is my agent, which I'm like super excited about because that's another thing that I, that I came across was women often don't see themselves like as a true professional. So like within USL, you have coaches who have agents who negotiate their contracts. And I was like, Hmm, why have I never gotten an agent before? (laughs) So, you know what? I went and got myself an agent who, you know, is going to advocate for me. So I'm, again, I'm always learning. And, And so the women in soccer group, basically, um, you can, you can check us out online. It's women in soccer.us, I believe. And we are going to have like a Slack group for women. So you'll be able to go in and connect with women wherever they're based and talk about whatever topics you want to talk about. Um, you know, once we can meet in person, we plan on having some in-person events, different web educational webinars. I'll be doing a weekly podcast and, and basically on the podcast, we'll be highlighting awesome things that, that women and allies are doing in the game to, to grow the, the sport, you know, whether it's on, again, whether it's on the field or, or in the front office or, or whatever. So um, super excited about, you know, having, having and creating more connections for women and actually, you know, not necessarily like mentoring women, because to me, that word is like, it's kind of artificial in a lot of ways. I think like supporting and sponsoring women and, you know, champion, championing those of us um, in the game. I can't say that word very well, (laughs) Um, but, you know, and, and cheering each other on because, you know, one thing that I've actually found and, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna say in the past that I was probably guilty of in a way is you know there have been so few opportunities for women that a lot of times women can like be negative to each other because if there's you know if they're hiring one woman and you know like you're you're fighting against you're competing against that female and you know that that's a hard situation to be in so it's it's better you know we're we're stronger together than we are as adversaries so um i think i i think i was that that competitive one in the past early in my career maybe but it doesn't make any sense you know like that's that's a lesson i think i learned along the way so i will definitely so, link yeah. super to super excited women. about women in soccer I will link to women in soccer in the show notes so you can get there straight from the awesome. website. Yeah. Um, and, and we are, we, we support everyone. Like we want allies. Like we, we honestly realize most of my mentors were male because I didn't know a lot of females in the sport. So like it takes, it takes everyone to advance, not only the sport, but to, to advance, you know, uh, the numbers uh, to, to make change. So by no means do we want to, you know, alienate anyone 
uh, open, it's open, it's open, it's open. So just want to make, make sure that people understand that. No, that's very good to hear. I, I want to give you a chance here to kind of open-endedly uh, support people in the sport. And yeah. I'm going to ask two specific questions. First of all, you talked about so many people our age having their kids playing soccer. Yep. What advice would you give to parents who have kids who have an interest in soccer and maybe some talent who are looking at club versus travel team and recruiting and all the different things and pressures that come with that? Yeah. Um, my advice to parents is a, don't try to live vicariously through your kid. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've seen it in a lot of ways over the years and, you know, I've, you know, one of the saddest conversations I think I've ever had was with a high school senior who basically was in tears because she didn't want to play college soccer. And she felt immense pressure from her parents because in her words, they spent all this money for her to play college soccer. And, you know, I, I had to talk to her and I said, look, you need to tell your parents how you feel like this isn't healthy to be in tears over stress over, you know, an expectation that you think your parents want for you, like have the conversation. Maybe, maybe they will listen. Maybe they will understand. And, and she didn't go She didn't choose to play college soccer, which was amazing for her because I don't think it would have turned out well. So a, don't try to live vicariously through your, through your kids. B, don't get caught up in the winning because I will guarantee at the professional level, at the college level, I never we never recruited a player based on how many games they won at U12. Doesn't come up. Like, who cares? Doesn't Like, honestly, it doesn't matter. So what matters is, that you have a good coach, that your player is happy and that you feel that they're progressing with their skills and that they are learning positive life skills because to that is what you should be getting out of it. And if they want to play college soccer or they want to be more competitive, it should be the choice of the player, not and pressure put on them by a parent or by a coach. So being able to have healthy conversations with your kids is to me the way to go. And the, the last thing is I've had a lot of parents ask me, well, what club should my kid play for? And I firmly, firmly, firmly believe this, that it's, it's about the coach because you don't, the, the club, the entity of the club doesn't train your kid. Like the coach has is the one that has the impact on your child. So the club could be great, but you could have a really bad coach in that club that like belittles your kid or yells at your kid or doesn't understand how to teach players correctly, you know, given their age. And then it's a bad experience. So, you know, go to practices, go watch potential coaches, how they train, how they coach in games, because sometimes that's totally different. So do your homework on that. That would be my advice to soccer parents. And now advice for an aspiring soccer coach. Oh gosh. Uh, don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I did not say that. Uh, I've loved, like I said, I've loved it. It's been amazing. So aspiring soccer coach, um, again, uh, 
find someone who you can talk to. If you're a female, join our network, Women in Soccer, because we have people who have coached at every level and we could give you good advice. But find people um, and find people who you can ask questions of, who you could go observe, who can take you under their wing, who you could bounce ideas off of. Um, and I think that's one thing I had. I had good people around me, but I didn't necessarily know how to network at a younger age. And, you know, that's something I'm still getting better at and that I've been actually doing a lot of during COVID is like, I've sat down and looked on LinkedIn and like reached out to people who, who I like know of, but have never really talked to. So, you know, being, um, trying to network, you know, going and getting coaching licenses, you know, maybe volunteering at first to see if you even like coaching, because, you know, sometimes you, you might, you might not like it. Maybe you want to get involved as, as a, you know, athletic trainer and you want to be around the sport or you want to be a general manager or something. So, you know, job shadow people and, you know, just always try to, um, challenge yourself, uh, because no one's going to come around and like knock on your door and say, Hey, do you want to be a coach or Hey, apply for this job? You know, like you have to, you have to put yourself out there. Like, like I said earlier, I would never would applied for Mount St. Joe had Scott not pushed me and basically said, what's it going to hurt if you don't get an interview? And I was like, Oh, okay. So, you know, make sure you have people in your life like that who are going to kick you in the butt and, and challenge you, and challenge you a bit, because that's, that's honestly the only way that, that you're ever, you know, going to grow and, and maybe get jobs that, that, you, you thought were impossible for you at, at some point. I close with the same six questions for everybody. And I call it the set pieces. So I love that I'm talking to a soccer person oh, and calling it, it the set pieces. It. I even wrote out <laughs> answers. I was prepared. Uh oh, All right. Great. Here we go. The first question, what are podcasts and or newsletters you use to stay informed and keep learning? Um, okay. So I subscribe to the athletic. Um, that's a good one. Uh, beyond 90 and our cup of tea podcasts are two that I listen to. Um, my podcast, women talking soccer, which we're launching here, that that'll be a good podcast to follow. Um, yeah, I think those are like the main things that I listen to or, or, uh, read. When are you a, launching that? On a daily. Uh, I want to say 11-11. So November okay. 11th, I believe, is the day. Okay. We'll be on the lookout for that. On social awesome. media, what posts do you not want to miss? Um, okay. So uh, the at NWSL, so following the women's soccer, um, at U.S. WNT women's national team uh at Jeff Reuter who writes for the athletic he's an awesome um soccer person to follow and uh a good woman who is always on the scoop is uh her let's see her social is it's Meg Linehan, L-I-N-E-H-A-N. <laughs> okay. What are a couple books that you'd recommend for people to read? 
Um, one of my favorite ones is uh, Legacy about the New Zealand uh, rugby team. I love that book. So, super good. Highly, re- highly recommend it. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, a book that I read, or actually I've been reading a lot. So I read The Alchemist this summer, and I can't believe I've never read that book, but I loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, Simon Sinek has a book called Leaders Eat Last, I think. I think Simon Sinek wrote that that one and then i liked um i also read untamed this summer by glennon doyle and that was that was really good the, the message in the book is i'm a goddamn cheetah don't ever forget that <laughs> so if you've read the book you know that that's the battle cry so all right television what are you streaming uh cbs plus is that had the NWSL. Um, I watched games on Twitch, ESPN Plus, Netflix, Amazon Prime. I really don't watch the news because I don't have cable TV, so I just watch stuff on. That's about it. Any particular shows on Prime or Netflix that? you're a fan of you know i've been watching a lot of documentaries um like i watched uh glory steinem's documentary last night so that was really good um called the glorious i like that um i start this is such a this is such a weird show i'm not i'm not a big person on tv shows or whatever but so weird so good in a lot of ways so it's about this guy who thinks he's or he actually is the devil and he comes and lives in LA but he helps like solve crimes and punish bad people so it's kind of weird like I have no idea why why I've been watching it I must have too much time on my hands (laughs) I can't believe I admitted I watched Lucifer and it seems like a really strange show to pivot to then. What is your favorite sports memory as a kid? Growing up in Flint, we had an IHL hockey team called the Flint Generals. And I, my dad and I had season tickets. So I used to go to all the Flint Generals hockey games and love, like absolutely was obsessed with hockey and, and that team. And I used to, when they would go on the road because they didn't televise their games, they were on the radio. And so I would, you know, this is, this is back in the eighties. So I would lay in front of the fireplace, listening to hockey on the radio, like cheering on my team. And, and like, I still have super vivid memories of, you know, the Flint generals playing the Kalamazoo Comets and the Muskegon versus the Muskegon Mohawks and all these crazy random IHL teams. So that was, that was a good memory. And then, you know, part of the reason why I chose to go to Michigan was I also, my dad and I, you know, had season tickets from the time I was probably 10 and going to football Saturdays at, at Michigan Stadium with my dad was like, it was just awesome. And, and you know, the fans and driving there, we'd always park at the same same um, house because people would, you know, open up their yards and we always would stop at the same restaurant on the way home and it was just a a really cool tradition so there's like 
zero surprise. Like my dad was mad at me when I chose to go into coaching and I'm like, dad, there's literally zero surprise in that because I was like, I'm an only child. So like I, I was the boy, like he took me to everything. Like <laughs> I, I swear he wanted me to be a boy because basically he's the one that like, I played peewee baseball. I played hockey. I did all these sports. So like there's zero surprise that I chose a career in sports. So thanks dad. <laughs> Lastly, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I actually do. Um, I, I even have like, I even have my San Diego loyal credential here on my desk. Um, I have a shoe box of that. So I have a shoe box of credentials and ticket stubs. I like to keep ticket stubs as well from sporting events. I, I love just the camaraderie, whether it's soccer or whatever it is. I just, there's something about like going to a sporting event that I just, it's just awesome. Carrie, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your career and all the projects you've been a part of. I want to wish you luck with the Jamaican national team, but also with women in soccer. I think it's a great initiative. So I hope it, it gets off to a great start here in November. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. It was great to, to reconnect. I'm always happy to talk about soccer and sports in general. Little housekeeping on the way out. The website for KRE's newest project is womeninsoccer.org. Womeninsoccer.org. Full launch is coming soon, but if you go there now, you can register with your email address to get updates as they roll it out. I want to wish her the best of luck with that. I hope you enjoyed this conversation on Credentials Only. A huge thanks to Carrie for her time and to you for listening. As mentioned at the top, show notes are on credentialsonly.com to learn more about what we discussed in this episode. Mike Miche edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.